Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, Jugmeet Singh. Do we give him a pass? He is an opposition MP. Does he do that job or should we demand more? Alberta's oil industry is booming. Where is all that money ending up? Certainly not in Alberta. And from early menopause to fertility uncertainty, a major issue facing young women after a cancer diagnosis. Good chunk of the audience absolutely loves heaping scorn on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Much of it well-deserved, no doubt. Some of it not at all deserved and some of it just plain absurd, but so be it. He is public enemy number one for a lot of Albertans. We know that. We've seen the flags and the bumper stickers, right? Jagmeet Singh, though, manages to evade a whole lot of attacks. At worst, he might get sideswiped in a, in a Singh-Trudeau coalition drive-by, but he's not a target. Nowhere near the kind of target that Justin Trudeau is. Are we giving him a pass unfairly? We're going to have a chat about that with Adam Pankratz, a lecturer at the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Nice to be with you, Shane. It seems like Singh sort of found himself in a, in a pretty sweet spot basically his entire career, right? Even how he found himself in the position of leader of the NDP was a, kind of a stroke of luck. Well, I think that's right. I think if you look back over uh, his entire career, it's really been a case of continually falling up, right? His his uh, seats, uh, the NDP seats under him have continually gone down, yeah. yet because of uh, political fortune, he's been in a minority parliament where he has been supporting the Liberals and thus has had an outsized say and presence, even though his election performance has been quite dismal. Um. It's, But you take a look at, like you say, his electoral record, not good, not good at all, but he's managed to stay in as leader. He's also found himself, you know, within the House, despite the fact that he's really never made any gains electorally. In a, in, you know, he's the kingmaker. He's in this position where he, he holds the balance of power basically through, you know, no fault of his own. Uh, it's it's not uh, his fault that, that that's the verdict that Canadian electors uh, return to him for sure. But um, you know it is it is a, a lucky position to be in. And when we look at you know really what has he achieved or how does he hold the Liberals to account, um, it's really unclear what he's done uh, with that good fortune. And uh, you know it, it the most extreme example that we're seeing of that is the Emergencies Act inquiry, where he's even used uh, just recently, only a couple of days ago, that he probably wouldn't pull the plug on the government, even if it were found out that there were improper use of the Emergencies Act. Mm-hmm. So it seems a totally unconditional support for really very little in return for the NDP. Like, what have they what have they gained or how have they improved their position over these two minority parliaments? It's really not clear at all how that's happened. But 
I mean, in some ways, I mean, if you think about it, has he not done quite well with this position? I mean, there's no way that NDP policy is ever going to be enacted in this country by them winning an election. And I think Singh recognizes that. So he has managed to see a couple of his, you know, his platform policies, be it dental care or child care or whatever, at least be pushed into the conversation. And some of them have actually happened, you know, in exchange for propping up the government. So hasn't he leveraged it somewhat, uh, you know, successfully? I mean, I think if you would ask the wider public, I think as so often has happened, um, the NDP has been kind of fleeced by the Liberal Party. I mean, the Liberal Party is going to get the credit uh, for the yeah. dental program. Uh, they're going to get the credit for all of those policies. And when you look at the relationship that uh, Mr. Singh has had with Mr. Trudeau, it's it's really been a one-way liberals dictating, liberals deciding, and then taking what may what may be good ideas, right? But taking those ideas, uh, implementing them, getting the credit, and not not sharing that with the NDP. So, um, you know, I think when when you look at how is Parliament being held to account, how is um, how is this reflecting on the NDP overall? It really doesn't look good overall for the NDP, and I, I don't think they're going to get the benefit for even some of the ideas that, that might be positive. And, you know, you make a good point in terms of he, in reality, is a member of the opposition. He's an MP, a leader of an opposition party, and their job, their primary job uh, under the system that we have is to hold the government to account. And like you say, that's just plain not happening with the NDP. It, it doesn't happen. I mean, and this is the, the odd thing, right? From from day one, when the supply and confidence agreement to support the Trudeau Liberals was struck, um, the main the main thing that Mr. Singh has done is tweet rather angrily yeah. and and bash the Liberals uh, and complain about all these things that they're doing that the NDP would do different or that the NDP doesn't like. And the question is, well, you know, who is in a position to do that? Well. You, Mr. Yeah. Singh, right? You are the person who could change this, but you you talk a big game about it, but you don't actually do anything about it. And um, and and again, the, the most egregious example that seems we're already getting the groundwork laid for is is the the the, the Emergencies Act, right? That even that would not be enough for um, the NDP to pull their support. Well, if that isn't enough, then what is, right? What what could possibly be enough to hold a government to account who improperly used um, uh, a legislation that suspended the democratic freedoms of Canadians? Well, if that's not enough, this is never <laughs> this is never going to change. <laughs> and if the, if the Liberals know that, then they're, again, just going to do even more what they already want. Um, you know, it's a political calculation. Whenever you're talking about a politician, they're making the political calculation. So what's the upside? I mean, is it hurting him within his party or uh, broad, more broadly than within the NDP? I mean, he seems to be quite comfortable with where he is. Um, is there a possibility that this position that he finds himself in could go away and he may no longer be leader? I mean, is there any kind of, other than you and I sitting here talking today, is there an outcry about Jagmeet Singh and the way he's handling his position in the House? Well, from within the NDP, there doesn't really seem to no. be very much of one, which is which is really, you know, a, a quite a serious indictment of the situation of the party. I mean, the political calculation in so much as, as I can see it is that the NDP is broke and the NDP, um, you know, they don't have the money to fight an election. And so they're just trying to limp along 
and uh, and haven't had a coherent message uh, for Canadians that they think they can improve their chances electorally, despite very mediocre performance um, from from the Liberals. And the Liberals, you know, politically deserve a lot of credit in that sense that they have really completely marginalized the NDP um, and and taken out any differentiation that the NDP might have been able to establish on the left side of the spectrum, right? And that mm-hmm. um, I think for many voters, um, they would they would rather, who are going to vote Liberal or NDP, they would rather put their vote um, with the Liberals for the moment because they think that is a, a higher chance of, of getting some type of power in Parliament. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. Interesting conversation. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That's Adam Pankratz, who is a lecturer at the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. And he's right. And I know a lot of you get really, really angry about it. And I'm seeing it on the text line, how Singh is just, you know, there to prop up Trudeau. And that's really all he's interested in. He's not doing any of the work of an opposition MP. And I guess there are there's an argument to be made that that's ultimately how our system works. And I think in some instances you can point to Jagmeet Singh and say, you know what? For a guy who's never going to be elected prime minister and never be in a position to actually see any of his party's policies brought in that way, he's done a pretty damn good job of finding an end run. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You may also know that Alberta's energy industry, the oil sands particularly, are producing more than ever before, right? And profits are soaring and revenues are way up. So um, both things can't necessarily be true. And how you square that circle is entirely up to you. But one thing we do know for sure is all that extra revenue, all those profits that we hear about, it's not making a huge difference to us here in Alberta, at least not yet. So let's try and find out why. We're going to chat with uh, Charles St. Arnaud, who is a chief economist with Alberta Central. Uh, Cheryl, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning, Shay. So when we talk about this, I mean, the oil industry in Alberta, of course, a boom and bust business. We know that. Um, these are decidedly boom times once again, right? Things are going very well in the oil patch. Well, I think it's how you describe the boom that's the difference is that, yes, we've had, we're reaching record levels of revenues in, uh, in, in terms of value of production. We've been producing since the beginning of the year for about $12 billion per month. As a comparison in 2014, in the previous boom, the maximum we produced in a month was $7.7 billion. So it's a big difference in terms of the value. Yet, 
we're not really feeling the impact on the broader economy. I don't think the economy feel as effervescent as it was back in the mid 2010s. No, you're right. There's a very, very different feeling. So when we see these massive revenues, like you say, larger than we've ever seen, um, what, what, where, where is it going? Where is that money ending up right now? Well, I think in one part is there's a greater share of those revenues that are being returned to shareholders, both in terms of uh, dividends and share buybacks. So to give some numbers, uh, right now, uh, their oil producers are returning about 10% of their revenue. So roughly the, the, the producers I was looking at, it's about 20 billion that they returned to their uh, shareholders last year, over the past year. The same producers in 2014 were returning 4% of their revenue, so about $4.5 billion. So it's almost four times more that they're returning to their shareholders right now. And those shareholders are not based here in Alberta. Actually, uh, 75% of those shareholders on average are actually foreigners. So to, it actually, in some ways, explains what you were, were talking about earlier about the Canadian dollar. Usually, a Canadian dollar appreciates with higher oil prices, mm-hmm. but they did it in the same magnitude because, well, it's money in and money out. So the money doesn't stay in the country, so the dollar doesn't appreciate. Um, the reasons for that, and I'm sure there are many, when we take a look at why it's not being reinvested and why there isn't expansion and all the things that people have been talking about, what's going on? Well, Obviously, there's also the fact that you can see that uh, the share of revenues being reinvested in their operation is much smaller than yeah. it was back in 2010. So right now, they're reinvesting about 7% of their revenues. In 2014, it was 25% of their revenues. So that means that you probably have so it's a much smaller share that of what is being returned. But also what's important is the type of investment that's being done is also different and has a very different uh, economic spillover to the or spillover to the rest of the economy, and what I mean by that is that in the mid 2000s or even the previous boom like in in the 2000s is that oil demand was strong, prices were were high, producers wanted to increase production at all costs, so mm-hmm. they were developing new uh, projects, starting new oil sand mines, which use a lot of capital early in the process. It takes tens of billions of dollars at the start of the project to build the mine. So to, you need to hire workers to clear the land, build the roads, build the infrastructure, get the machinery. So there's a lot of other sectors from construction to manufacturers that are actually getting some, um, that are being pulled higher from uh, those investments. But right now the investment we're seeing is efficiency gains. How can we squeeze uh, more oil at lower cost? How can we, uh, produce the same barrel of oil with a much smaller carbon footprint because that's what will matter in the future. It's not increasing produ- production because every forecast of global oil uh, demand you can look at, they all seem to say early 2030 will peak in terms of oil demand and we'll start to see global demand declining. So there's not that need for the big increase in production. So those efficiency gains are what will uh, allow those uh, producers to be viable in the long term. So it's not, I mean, I was going to ask, sometimes these kinds of actions are temporary in order to, you know, sort of improve the bottom line, and then they'll start considering more expense. But you're saying this is sort of the pattern that we should expect to continue, just given on where we are in terms of global demand and all the rest and where we're headed. Yes. 
Like I'm not saying that it's it's a per, it's a permanent shift. It's that we know there'll be less demand from oil in the in the latter half of twenty of twenty thirty and beyond. So there's no need to increase production, but there will still be a need for for oil. Yeah. But the person who will be supplying that oil or the company that will supply that oil will be the most efficient, and that's where the investment money is going to. Okay. Uh, the situation in Europe, does that play into this at all? I mean, that seems to be a factor, when, especially when it comes to energy in our world right now. Uh, does that affect any decision-making here? I think there's it, there's two ways of, of seeing it. One is that it created a, a big surge in demand for uh, energy, a Canadian energy in the very short term because we we can we have the capacity to increase production. We don't necessarily have the infrastructure to do it. Yeah. So that's where it's kind of positive in the short term. But in the long term, producers or countries in Europe are not seeing or are seeing uh, the issue with, or the kind of the energy crisis that they're seeing as a way to well the way to solve it in the long term is to reduce their dependence on foreign energy. So they're increasing, and you see it with decision from various governments. They're increasing domestically produced energy. I think the big, big example has been the gradual turnaround in Germany to keep a nuclear power plant open lo- longer, and more and more discussion of restarting other ones. We have the same discussion in France. So actually, the war in Ukraine may actually accelerate some of the transition away from fossil fuel. Well, we've heard that talk from a number of leaders, yeah. Uh, Very interesting discussion, Charles. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you being here. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's an important conversation. It really, really is. We're going to be talking about cancer. And cancer, well, not specifically, in a way. Um, You know, a cancer diagnosis for anyone, obviously, is traumatic. It's terrifying, right? There's there's no question. I don't care who you are. Uh, Job one instantly becomes, okay, how are we going to survive this? How are we going to treat this? And that that makes good sense, right? Um, But surviving it really um, is the ultimate goal, but it's just the start, it can be life-changing in a lot of ways. And young women face changes forever. You know, their entire life cycle, or if that's the proper term, and it's probably not, can be changed. Um, and uh, there's not a lot of support around some of this. So we're going to have a conversation about some of the issues and, and, and what we can do to maybe help. So we're going to chat with Dr. Kimberly Cullen, who is a Toronto-based clinical and health psychologist who works with young women affected by cancer. Dr. Cullen, thank you for your time. I appreciate you being here. 
Hi, Shay. Thank you so much for having me. You know, the cancer diagnosis, of course, that's that's the start. And, and you know, for, for young women, obviously the job one is, okay, let's beat the cancer. That makes perfect sense. But, but what comes after? It can be all kinds of different, you know, life-changing events, right? Absolutely. I think that the journey does not, uh, it, it starts and does not end uh, yeah. with cancer diagnosis and treatment. And I think that, you know, the multiple implications when it comes to cancer survivorship are, of course, dependent on the type and severity of cancer and whatnot. Um, I think we're starting to have more dialogues about what survivor looks, look, looks like with respect to those implications, whether it's, you know, changes in fertility and family planning, changes in the structure of um, the family, changes in mental health and coping, fear of recurrence, um, as well as in changes in, in physical and sexual functioning. And so, yeah, the, the journey does not end when that, you know, proverbial, literal, you know, last chemotherapy treatment bell yeah. has been rung. And, and, and it's not one size fits all. And everybody's going to have a different experience. And like you say, different kinds of cancer and different kinds of treatments are all going to be different. So can we boil it down to some of the more common issues? And if we did, what would they be? Some of the main common issues we often think about are the side effects of uh, chemotherapy and surgeries. Okay. And so a lot of my work is with breast cancer patients, for example. And so things like surgeries, of course, leave um, the body, you know, permanently I don't want to necessarily say damaged, but but certainly for sure, as well as is changed even with something like reconstructive surgery, um, as well as the impacts of chemotherapy, both in terms of going through chemotherapy. You know, I'm I'm sure it's not news to most people. They've probably known someone with cancer and, and what it's like to go through that, but also the after effects of chemotherapy. So when we talk about fertility issues, you mentioned those and how they're affected. I mean, that can be affected by chemotherapy, radiation, all of those things, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that's, you know, chemotherapy could sometimes come as a surprise to uh, women who are not being treated for gynecological cancer. Right. And so I think there is a lot more information readily available, um, you know, but the ways in which chemotherapy can impact all the way to completely, you know, alter for life ovarian function, how it can stress uh, women, you know, in, into instant menopause, which, you know, could be short term, but could be also long term. And, and with the complications or side effects of that being uh, potentially chronic uh, and pervasive. Um, and so there are a lot of changes when it comes to fertility and also just the sense of, of a woman's uh, body image and reproduction and, and what that feels like above and beyond just family planning. And, you know, I think for, for patients going through this, obviously, like we said, you know, the focus is going to be on treating the cancer. And I'm sure the doctors are focused on treating the cancer. Mm -hmm. Is there enough support for sort of, OK, we'll get that done and we'll take good care of you there and we'll be there afterwards. And this is what to expect. Is, does that kind of work get done as much as it should? It has gotten better, and I'm continuously inspired and encouraged with the oncology teams that I have worked with with respect to the interest and the enthusiasm in providing that support. Um, but I think there continues to be a little bit of a, a more of a gap than I would like with between the enthusiasm um, and the actual support um, available. You know, a lot of women will sort of describe and report that they, they want the information uh, when it comes to things like sex and reproduction. Yeah. They want it early. They want their their, their providers to bring it up, um, and yet it's often not until it becomes an issue where it is 
brought up but often not brought up that that survivors don't necessarily know who to ask if it's their you know oncologist at let's say a six-month follow-up or the nurse or even their primary care physician and so it's one of those things where i would certainly i think we're on the up the uptake with respect to that support uh but we need to be talking about it early and frequently yeah like what about before treatment is started can there be a consideration to okay this treatment might be more successful but it might have these after effects whereas this one i mean do those converse is that something that even i mean is that a possibility or are they all pretty much the same it is a possibility and it does happen you know i think it depends on on you know the team and the oncologist and so uh, you know i certainly would make a gross statement or or general statement saying you know no one's talking about this and yet a lot of the women that i spoke to actually said no one is no one is mentioning this and so you know when we think about you know having conversations like amputating a limb that we are actually taking someone's lifestyle in mind with respect to what that would look like in terms of rehabilitation and i think that we need to be doing that more in the context of cancer care um the canadian cancer society has a really wonderful 85-page booklet that I think was um, published in 2019 or revamped, um, and and it's full of information with respect to the different types of cancers and treatments and the implications about sex and so I, and fertility and, and body image and all that, um, and so I think it. There is some room, certainly, for improvement with respect to having these conversations, not just with respect to, of course, you know, quote-unquote, beating the cancer and survivorship, but the long-term implications of this and and the questions that women want to be asking themselves when they are actually making choices when it comes to treatment. It's not just a one-size-fits-all, and it's not just a one-treatment-fits-all with respect to treatment options. So, so how do we do that? Do we, I mean, is, is this happening? Is this uh, uh, something that people are talking about more often? Are there resources that are available now that weren't there five years ago? I mean, is this, is this something that's mm-hmm. being developed? It is, it is being developed. Uh, it's, it's one of the, the reasons that I particularly was interested in getting into this field was just to bring, you know, particularly sex and reproduction more at the forefront. We think about physical and mental health, as, and though we talk about that, I think mental health has come a long way, and I think that uh, sexual and reproductive health should also be a part of that. And so, you know, again, I think these conversations are happening. It often falls upon um, the patients to sort of do their homework yeah. and ask those questions. And I think, again, the really important to think about thing to think about is there is so much information. We just hear the word, you know, cancer diagnosis and trying to process that and trying to think about, you know, treating and beating the cancer, but also having those conversations. And so, you know, I think that, you know, one of the potential reasons for that is that, like, there are time constraints. I think that sometimes services are a bit more siloed than, than, than I think they need to be. You know, I think that the vast majority of larger cancer centers um, have psycho-oncology departments, and so psycho-oncology is, is the way that we look at um, the emotional and spiritual and psychological impacts of cancers, both throughout cancer and in survivorship. Um, and I think that these services play a really important role in potentially having those conversations or helping uh, women and, and patients alike have those conversations. I think that often, you know, cancer patients and or survivors might find themselves, you know, seeking these services more typically because they are having difficulties, you know, coping with the initial shock of of the diagnosis or coping with survivorship. But I think the role of social workers and, and psychologists, for example, to help women and patients think about, you know, what they want in treatment when, again, there's just so much 
yeah. so much and so much fast information coming at them. Well, I think you're right. It's overwhelming. And I think, you know, if you, you talk about those silos and that makes perfect sense. Like you could understand why it would be like that. Like our first, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to save your life. And okay, well, I'll work with that. Um, I'm wondering if you're a patient and we know sadly there are people listening today that are in this position that have recently received a cancer diagnosis. If you're a woman mm-hmm. in that position, where do you start? How do you sort of, even I'm sure there are questions that are going to come up that you don't even know are going to come up because a lot of this stuff, like you say, there's so much information. Um, we've probably opened some eyes today. Where do people start to try and get the information that will guide them in their own journey? Oh gosh. And that's, that's such a hard one. I mean, it's not that the information is there, but often women don't even know what information they're looking for. And there's so right. many accounts yep. of, I didn't know chemotherapy could impact me this way. Yep. And so, you know, I think that I all, I'm always encouraging my patients to, you know, advocate for themselves in terms of their own support networks to be asking their healthcare providers where they can receive the information. You know, but but I do think and I do encourage it to fall a bit more on healthcare providers to be, you know, asking these questions with respect to any concerns that women might have. I think that we're, if we're asking things more open-ended rather than in a directed way, it creates permission and dialogue um, around cancer and survivorship. Um, you you know, for example, if, if, if a patient comes into to their doctor's office, we are asking routine questions about, you know, how is your sleep? How are your bowel movements? How is your diet these days? How is your energy? And so to just be adding these questions with, you know, how is your mood? How is your mental health? And how is your sex life? What are your goals? So to just be incorporating it more into um, the conversation, you know, and again, the resources are there, I think. You know, we're taking a, a swing with respect to, you know, increase in services and, and advocacy. I think that um, there is more programming and education both within hospitals and, and certainly within private practice. You know, we know, you know, large national organizations like Rethink Breast Cancer, who supports young women with um, breast cancer, is a great place to start. Um, and so I really do encourage women not just to advocate and, and seek the information, but advocate and feel comfortable asking their health providers where to get this information. Um, uh, excellent advice. Thank you so much for your work and, and for joining us today to talk a bit about it. It's so important. Thank you very much, Dr. Cullen. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.